Well, welcome. Good morning. My name is Mason Ballard. I'm the lead pastor here at Resurrection, and we're really glad that you've chosen to come out and worship with us as uh, we pray for fall to get here. Summer yet persists. As Molly read, we're in Colossians chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. The title of this sermon is Christ in Us. Christ in Us. We're still in the early part of the letter, though we've been at it for a few weeks. At this juncture, Paul opens up a bit about his ministry and lets the Colossians and us in posterity see more of his heart. We'll see Paul embracing suffering on the path of obedience, proclaiming Christ and the glory of Christ in us and striving to protect the church from the plausible arguments of false teachers. We see Paul's heart for the glory of God. We see Paul's heart for the proclamation of the gospel, and we see Paul's heart for the health of the church. As you may have picked up a little bit in Molly's reading, some of these ideas and themes appear in multiple places in our passage. So the sermon may not be as neat as I would like, but we're going to stick to the text. Nonetheless, three actions will serve as the basic outline for our sermon this morning. The first action is embracing suffering. The second action is proclaiming Christ. And the third action is protecting the church. Embracing suffering, proclaiming Christ, and protecting the church. Those are the pillars around which this sermon will be built. God, let me just pray for us for a moment. God, help us fix our minds on you. Help us lean into this text. Help us proclaim Christ. Help us serve your church more than anything. God, help us see the beauty and power of the simple statement, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Let's jump into the text. Colossians 1, 1, 20, uh, 4. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 24 begins, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The first part's pretty cut and dry. Paul's rejoicing in his suffering. He rejoices for the sake of the church, knowing his suffering is for them. But then verse 24 has a fascinating, somewhat perplexing statement. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Well, is there something lacking? Is there something insufficient about the afflictions of Christ? The point Paul's making here is not that Christ's suffering is, is somehow insufficient. The point Paul's making is that his suffering as an experienced reality is not suddenly gone. Christ's suffering as an experienced reality is not suddenly gone, meaning what he did on the cross is finished. It's accomplished. We can't add to it, and neither can we take from it. 
But Paul is joining Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul's suffering is an extension of the work that Christ began on the cross. Christ is now working through Paul to bring to completion that which was realized on the cross. Christ is working through Paul to take the gospel to the nations. So Paul rejoices because his suffering is for a reason. It's a part of his calling to the church. But I think more instinctively, Paul rejoices in his suffering because he is not alone. Christ is with him. In fact, his suffering is not a sign that he's far from where God wants him. His suffering is a sign that he is right where God wants him. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes, I might jot that down because you might this morning be suffering and you might this morning assume that that suffering is somehow an indication that your life isn't where it should be. Your suffering is somehow an indication that um, God's not pleased with you or God is far from you. When we experience discomfort, when we experience pain, when we experience suffering, our first temptation is to look for a way out of that. And I think in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, that seeking a way out of pain, seeking a way out of discomfort, seeing that the grass is perhaps greener on the other side is one of the truly great uh, barriers in our growth in Christ and in the advance of God's kingdom in the world. In many cases, suffering is not a sign that we are far from where God wants us. In many cases, suffering is a part of the reality in which we find ourselves, in which God has called ourselves. It's a sign that we are being changed, that the parts of our heart, the roots of sin that had become so comfortable, that the Holy Spirit is hacking at those roots, that transformation and change is happening, and that only happens in the context of friction. It's better, church, to suffer in the presence of God than relax in the company of the wicked. It's better to suffer in the presence of God than relax in the company of the wicked. So Paul is rejoicing in his suffering because he understands it's part of his calling, because he understands he's suffering for the church. Paul rejoices in his suffering because he's participating in the work of Christ. Paul rejoices in his suffering not because it feels good, not because he enjoys it, not because he likes it in some masochistic way, but simply because he's fellowshipping with Christ. The work Christ began and completed on the cross is now coming to bear on the rest of the world. And that suffering is bringing about the kingdom of God. We continue. He became a minister of the church, the text says, according to the stewardship from God given to him for the church. So Paul thinks of himself as divinely called because he is divinely called by God. And what is that calling specifically? I think we could sum it up in what follows. To make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul's calling 
is to make the Word of God fully known. Now, the text has some more odd language that we get to wade through together. In verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul is a minister of the gospel. Paul's a minister of God to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. This idea of mystery hidden for ages simply refers to God's unfolding plan for the world, specifically his plan of redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. Bits and pieces of God's plan are known throughout the Old Testament, but it's not fully known until the work of Christ is complete. So Paul is telling the church that the work he began that the work that God has been doing, rather, that's a better way to say it, the work that God has been doing somewhat in the background is now thrust into the foreground and the whole world is gonna learn what's happening and he's revealed this to the saints because he's shown them Jesus. The saints, the Christians, now know God's plan for the world, which has been a mystery, because they know Christ. The saints now understand that which has been a mystery to so many for so long because they know Christ. Now, to make the Word of God fully known, what does Paul do? To make the Word of God fully known, Paul proclaims Christ. So we've talked about Paul's embracing suffering. Now we'll go to the second point in the sermon, Paul's proclaiming Christ. Look with me in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all my, his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The title of the sermon comes from this passage because this is the part I want you to leave with just a full blessed assurance of knowing in your head and knowing in your heart. To them, to the saints, verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, among all people, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. That's a confusing phrase. The riches of the glory of the mystery. The riches of the glory of the mystery. Here's how we can maybe paraphrase it, if you will allow me. The thing that makes this absolutely awesome. The thing that makes this absolutely awesome. To them God chose to make known among the Gentiles the thing that makes this absolutely awesome, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's plan for the whole world, it's been a mystery to the smartest men and women who have ever lived. The greatest prophets of the Old Testament know but a taste of what the most common saint of that first century knew, which is simply that God has come to earth and in Christ Jesus, He's making all things right. 
And that that is not only cosmically good news, but that's personally good news. Because Christ indwells the hearts of all who call on Him. That God's not just redeeming and making sense of everything out there, but God is redeeming and making sense of everything in here. The best part, Paul's saying, about understanding God's plan for the world isn't so you can brag about it to your friends on Facebook since they had that in the first century. The best part about understanding God's plan for the world isn't that everything in your life would be a certain way. The best part about understanding God's plan for the world is realizing that Christ dwells in us. The best thing is experiencing that Jesus, the risen Lord, lives in us. Ian Thomas was working with InterVarsity in the slums of London in sort of the early to mid-1900s, I think. And he said this, I had been reduced to a state of complete exhaustion spiritually until I felt that there was no point in going on. So for some seven years, as the quote that's going to follow, that I'm going to read in just a moment. He's been toiling hard, working to serve in the slums of London. Difficult, hard work that is thankless, it's not immediately rewarding, and he's not seeing the kind of fruit that he expected to see. He writes this, Then one night in November, just at midnight, I got down on my knees before God and I wept in sheer despair. I said, Oh God, I know that I'm saved. I love Jesus Christ. I am perfectly convinced I'm converted. With all my heart, I've wanted to serve thee. I have tried to my uttermost, and I am a hopeless failure. That night, things happened. I can honestly say that I had never once heard from the lips of men the message that came to me then. God that night simply focused upon me the Bible message of Christ who is our life. And the Lord seemed to make plain to me that night through all my tears of bitterness. You see, for seven years, with utmost certainty, you have been trying to live for me on my behalf, the life I've been wanting for seven years to live through you. Let me read that again. Ian's heart was overwhelmed with the statement, you see for seven years with utmost certainty, you have been trying to live for me on my behalf, the life I have been wanting for seven years to live through you. You see the difference, church. It may seem like semantics, but in a heart posture and in a way of life, it is certainly not. He said, I got up the next morning to an entirely different life. His circumstances didn't change. His ministry didn't go from one victory to the next. He simply understood that the life he is to live is Christ's life through him. Let the results be as they may. The Christian life is not mere duty. The Christian life is Christ living in and through us. That's where we get our vitality. That's where we get our vibrancy. That's where we get our power. And if we have vibrancy, vitality, and power from any other source, it is not real. It is fake and it will run out. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, 
his whole biography is titled Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, and the secret to his life and ministry was the point at which he realized that his entire life was intended to draw on what he would call the unfathomable riches of Christ, these inexhaustible riches of Christ. The idea he's getting at is Christ in him. In one of the letters he wrote, he said, it freed me up to realize that everything that I did was not of my own volition or my own accord or for my own, of my own personality. Christ was in me. He was living his life through me. This is the picture. Jesus died for you so he might live in you. Jesus died for you so he might live in you. This is the power of Christ in you you. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says essentially, this is why I work with all the energy He powerfully works within me. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy, not my energy, with His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul understood that Christ was working through him. Someone asked Spurgeon famously, how do you accomplish all of this as just one person? And he famously responded, equipped really, it's not one person, right? It's the power of Christ in us that pushes us beyond what we think we're capable of. But what I think is really crucial for us to understand individually and as a church is that if the power that dwells in us is Christ in us, then the most significant and most important thing we can do is to cultivate that life with Christ. One of my professors in seminary, I can talk about that as a past reality now, it's really odd. Back when I was in seminary, last semester, <laughs> you know, he, he talked about like, if you do anything else during seminary, he said, if you do anything else, if you learn anything, do, read anything, do anything, don't lose your walk with Christ. If it means getting C's, get C's. If it means not getting tasks done, don't get tasks done for a season. Because the worst thing you could be is someone who gets good grades and gets stuff done but doesn't walk with Jesus. He says, future pastors, the best gift you can give your congregation is your walk with Christ. And texts like this help us understand that in less of a platitude and in more of a practical way. Because if the best gift I can give the congregation is my walk with Christ, if the best gift you can give the congregation, the best gift you can give the people around you is your walk with Christ, then what's happening in that, in that space, in that idea, is that, is that we're cultivating the life of Christ that dwells within us to live through us. So the sorts of things that happen when the life of Christ lives through us only happen when we're walking with Christ. If you don't do anything else this morning, this week, church, cultivate your walk with Christ. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Gather with the church. Confess sin. Your walk with Christ is the non-negotiable of the Christian life. There will never be spiritual progress in meaningful ways if that's not happening. We proclaim Christ, 
that we may present everyone mature to Christ, and the beauty of this whole thing is the presence of Christ in our lives. You see how utterly Christocentric Paul is in his letter to the Colossians. We see Paul embracing suffering. We see Paul proclaiming Christ. And now we go to the rest of the sermon, Paul protecting the church. We begin in chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We begin in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Paul's contending for the faith. There's a a difficulty here. He's in sort of um, a push-pull relationship. He's struggling where he is, writing likely from prison. He's struggling uh, with the circumstances the Colossians find themselves in. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and all those at Laodicea, a near, the nearest uh, city, if you will, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. I'm struggling. My desire for you, the reason I'm struggling, the reason I'm contending like so, is verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul's protecting the church from false teachers, and he's charting a better way forward. Notice what he… this is so theologically rich. He's not just saying, hey, I want you all to get along. I want you all to like each other okay. I want you all to learn a little bit. I want you all to to do worship better. I want you all to do this better. I want you all to have more programs for your church. What he desires for the church is that their hearts might be encouraged, that they might be knit together in love, encouraged hearts, knit together in love, to reach, I like that imagery of reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I want you guys to be rooted together in love. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to be reaching up together to these top-level truths, not just settling for where you are, but straining together to reach an assurance and a knowledge and an understanding of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul's saying, I want you guys to know Christ more. I want you to be confident in that. I want you to be sure of these things. Because in Christ, verse 3 of chapter 2, the text reads, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Reach up to know Christ because in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, Paul gets very specific to his context. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. One of my professors in undergrad taught us that all writing, all discourse happens in the context of some larger conversation. So when you're throwing out your, you know, your 
writing in a paper, when you're throwing out your writing in a status, in a tweet, you're contributing to a larger conversation. And your awareness of that conversation is going to shape the message that you deliver into that conversation. And Paul is writing into a conversation in which some false teachers are convincing the Christians that they don't have enough knowledge. They're convincing Christians that there's this secret hidden plan that only a select few have access to, and that the growth and uh, maturity that they need in their lives can only come from the hands of these false teachers who can offer this wisdom and insight that no one else has. And these were very smart people. They were some of the best philosophers of the day. These were plausible arguments. One of the things I can't stand about the state of modern Christian apologetics is it's this like, we just own everybody, you know? Like in films like God's Not Dead, the whole point is like, you've got this like atheist over here and a Christian over here, and the Christian just owns the argument of the atheist. And Paul would acknowledge as much as anyone, some of these arguments are plausible. They make sense. People don't believe them for no reason. Paul's saying, these are plausible arguments that these people are giving to you, but don't believe them because the things that they're offering you, it's not just information. They're offering you meaning. They're offering you wisdom. They're offering you knowledge. And I want you to hear their arguments, and I want you to know that you have meaning. You have knowledge. You have wisdom. You have all these things because the mystery they're talking about is not there. The mystery of God has been revealed in Jesus. So if you want to know the mystery that's been hidden, these guys need to see Jesus. Paul's protecting the church from false teachers who claim to hold hidden knowledge and true wisdom. He asserts that Jesus makes plain God's plan for the world and His desire for all people. It's not complicated. They don't have anything you need. You've got it all. Just hang with it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. You grow in knowledge when Jesus is the goal of that knowledge. Grow in knowledge. Grow in wisdom. Grow in understanding. But through the lens of Jesus, you see the rest of the world. Paul pastorally exhorts the church to fix their eyes on Jesus. And in the rest of the letter, he's going to help them do just that. Worship team, if you guys would uh, go ahead and come to the stage. You know, the Colossians were facing a lot of difficulty, and a lot of these false teachers were very sharp. They were very good, and many of them would claim, oh, this is compatible with Christianity. Like, this is something you can add on. Um, Paul would argue that's not the case. Paul would write to them as an apostle, laying forth some foundational teachings about Jesus. But in many ways, Paul is saying, all you need is all you have. All you need is all you have. And what Paul was unfolding to the saints we can see even clearer this morning. Because we don't just have one of Paul's letters, we have all the writings of the apostles. We have in our hands, on our phones, on the table, in the back, if you don't have a hard copy, please, we have Bibles 
for you to take, take one this morning. We have in our hands the true story of the whole world. We have in our hands the mystery of God. When you read through this, when you read through the Gospels, when you read through the writings of the Apostles, when you get to the end and see the vision that God gave John as he was stranded in exile on the island of Patmos, and you read Revelation and you see the whole story, you are seeing something that Elijah didn't see. You are seeing something that in those moments Moses did not see. You are seeing the plan of God for the whole world, and we are orienting our entire lives around that plan. So many times we come to church wanting something new to apply, new to apply. And I think what we need to remember week in and week out is really it's not the new stuff we need. We got to work the stuff we have. Why would we want new means of grace when we don't work the means of grace we got? How do we cultivate our life with God? We don't need some hidden secret from some evangelical guru out there. How do we lead and live a healthy church? I don't need the next best-selling book from a megachurch pastor. It may be helpful. It may not be helpful. I don't know. I've read some great ones. I've read some not great ones. Some have helped me. Some have not helped me. Because all the things we use and do, at best, they are tools to point us to Christ. So this morning, church, I remind you of what Paul reminded the Colossians, the riches of the glory of this whole thing. The thing that makes this so awesome is that Christ is living his life through you. We have all we need to be healthy. We have all we need to grow in healthy ways. We have all we need to deepen our relationships with each other. We don't need new systems. We don't need new these things. Some of those things will be helpful tools. And as a church, we're working hard to improve on those day in and day out. But I center us this morning on the reality that Christ in us, the hope of glory, is what we're all about. In just a moment, I'm going to invite us to the Lord's table where we end every sermon. We end every sermon at the Lord's table as sort of an altar call for all of God's people to respond. We proclaim Christ. We keep this feast as followers of Christ. This morning, the image that I have in my mind is this idea that the life of Christ is growing in us. And I think about that night Christ with his disciples, but he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to him and he said, some of those perplexing words he says in all of the New Testament, this is my body, broken for you. And he poured out wine and he hands it to the disciples, he said, this is my blood, this take, eat, take, drink. That Christ in those moments was foreshadowing the reality in which we now live. Christ saying, my body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed. And it will be given to you. So as we come to the table this morning, what we're proclaiming is the power of Christ in us. His body wasn't just broken. His body was given. 
We don't simply confess that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, which we confess. We don't just confess that. When you take that bread which we break in hand, you're saying, and Christ died for me. He knows me. He loves me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Church, do you know this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, this morning we've seen Paul in your scriptures embracing suffering because he knew you were with him. In your scriptures, Lord, we see Paul protecting the church because he knew you were enough. And this morning, Lord, we saw Paul proclaiming Christ because Christ in us is the hope of glory. Christ in us is how we go on. Christ in us is how we live the Christian life. And so this morning, Lord, as we come to the table in worship, as we come to the table in response, we examine our hearts and we confess of all the ways in which we've tried to circumvent our walk with you to get the results that we actually wanted. So God, as we come to this table this morning, help us come and die to ourselves. Help us realize that we're not just living for you, but that you're living through us. Change us, God. Shape us, God. Mold us, God. Thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. Church, there will be a few moments of reflection here while I come down and uh, someone comes to serve the supper with me. If you're in Christ, this table's for you. This is an opportunity for reflection and worship. Some weeks it's upbeat, some weeks it's not as upbeat. If you're not in Christ, I hope you've heard this sermon. I hope you've heard of this Jesus who is so great. And I hope this morning you'll know that you can know him. He can dwell with you if you confess your sins, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you turn from your sins, that there is new life, there is grace, there is truth, there is freedom, there is wisdom, there is understanding, and there is a body. And this is that body. It's not just a place you come to, it's a people you're a part of where we take care of each other, we lift each other up, and we fail all the time, but we're staying in this thing together, guys. And if that's you, I want to invite you into that life, the life of Christ, vibrant and dynamic and real and growing and true, and I pray you'll hear that invitation and respond. And if that's you, come grab me after the service. I just really believe someone needs to hear that this morning, and let me know that you've confessed that that you believe that and you're turning from your sin and you want to live that life. So here, church, take a few moments for reflection and then meet me at our table.